Well, last Sunday, I began by asking you to think of a class that had shaped your life somehow. Today, I'd like you to think of a sermon that has shaped your life. I know, I know there are so many of them, but try to think of just one. It might have been a message that brought you to faith in Christ or spoke to some problem or pain in your life. Uh, Maybe that influenced a significant decision or, or a change of direction. Can you think of a sermon like that? One that comes to my mind was a sermon I heard many years ago as a young pastor attending a conference. It came at a time when I was feeling especially discouraged as a pastor. Now, I don't remember the particular circumstances, but I do remember settling into my seat in that huge auditorium, feeling beaten down and defeated. The keynote speaker was Chuck Swindoll, who at the time was one of the most well-known preachers in the country and someone I admired as a pastor and a preacher. And the first words out of his mouth were, I've come here tonight to encourage you. At the sound of those words, something stirred within me, and I I sat up in my seat. He went on to preach a message from the life of David when, when he was in great distress as a leader, and his own men were talking about stoning him. The key text was 1 Samuel 36. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now, I don't remember much of what Swindoll actually said that night. All I know is that by the time the message was over, I was encouraged and ready to get back to the work of pastoring. However you're feeling as you settle into your seat today, discouraged maybe, troubled, distracted, curious, eager, I hope you'll sense something stirring in your spirit as we open the scriptures and invite God to speak into our challenges and and opportunities today. Because today, we're going to discover that whenever God does something new, it's always grounded in the life-changing message of Jesus. In these early days of 2024 and on the threshold of a new chapter in the life of our church, We're exploring the early chapters of Mark's gospel, learning what we can about how God does new things. So far, we've learned that when God does something new, he always prepares the way in our hearts and in the world around us. And when God does something new, it always calls for repentance, turning away from old and hurtful things into new and better things. Now, along the way, we're learning a little something about Mark himself, the author of this gospel. He pointed out last week that Mark is a storyteller, that his gospel moves quickly from one event to another without a lot of explanation. Most scholars agree that Mark was the first of the gospels to be written and that the others, Matthew and Luke in particular, built on Mark's work. Now, Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but apparently he was a close companion of Simon Peter. So scholars believe that the gospel is based largely on Peter's eyewitness testimony to the life and ministry of Jesus. Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at these early chapters thematically rather than chronologically. So as we focus on the message of Jesus today, we're going to skip ahead to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Now, we already read the passage earlier in the service, so let's just walk through it a few verses at a time. 
They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now, for some reason, Jesus chooses to begin his ministry in Capernaum rather than Nazareth, where he grew up. Now, Mark doesn't explain why. Maybe he wanted to escape whatever suspicions or expectations the people of his hometown might have had of him. Maybe it was because Capernaum was strategically located on a main travel route through Galilee. Or maybe it was because Capernaum happened to be a beautiful place. Capernaum was a fishing village situated on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a favorite site for tourists visiting the Holy Land today. There are some remarkably well-preserved ruins there. It's so beautiful, even to this day, that our tour guide last spring had a hard time getting us on the bus when it was time to leave. We just wanted to hang out there for a while. But beyond its beautiful and strategic setting, it it seems that several followers of John the Baptizer lived and worked there, including Simon and Andrew and James and John. And so it became a sort of home base for Jesus and his disciples in the early days of his ministry. Now, on this particular day, which happened to be a Sabbath day, Jesus joined the rest of the community gathering at the synagogue. There's actually a beautifully preserved synagogue in Capernaum today. It's not from Jesus' time, but just a few centuries later, and likely on the same site. So it's pretty special to sit in that sacred space and imagine Jesus worshiping and teaching there. Now remember, this was a synagogue, not the temple. So there were no sacrifices or rituals taking place. The typical Sabbath service was simple. Some prayers, a reading from the scriptures, and then a teaching. And since there were no priests, a local leader or visiting rabbi would be invited to offer the teaching. And on this occasion, it seems that Jesus had gained enough notoriety to be asked to speak. Now, in his typical style, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said. He focuses instead on how people reacted to the preaching. And he tells us the people were amazed or astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now again, Mark doesn't explain exactly what he means by as one who had authority. There's an old joke about a pastor who was going over his sermon before preaching. And after reading over a particular section, he, he made a note in the margin, weak point. Speak louder. I don't think Jesus' authority had to do with raising his voice or pounding the pulpit. But what was it about Jesus' teaching about this message that made it so authoritative, set it apart from the teaching of the day? Well, as I worked my way through the passage and thought through the rest of Mark's gospel, I came up with three observations about Jesus' teaching ministry and the message he likely shared that day. I'm actually going to use some of the language I used in last week's observations and and then offer some application at the end. So the first observation is that the message of Jesus was compelling and still is. Compelling and still is. That word compelling means evoking interest, 
attention, or admiration in a powerfully irresistible way. It's clear there was something captivating, something inspiring about Jesus' teaching. It made people lean in and pay attention, like I did as I listened to Chuck Swindoll's message that night a long time ago. But but what was it that made it so compelling? Well, it likely had something to do with the style of Jesus' preaching. And even though Mark doesn't give us a sample of his preaching here, we know from the rest of his gospel and other gospels that Jesus spoke very plainly in the language of everyday people. He told stories from the field and the marketplace and the kitchen and the highway. He spoke to people's hopes and fears and real lived experiences. He didn't get bogged down in textual or theological debates like the scribes and teachers of the law. He just opened up the text's plain meaning and then applied it to everyday life. But but powerful teaching requires substance, not just style. So there had to be something compelling about the content of Jesus' teaching. And even though Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said that particular day in the synagogue, he does give us the big idea of Jesus' teaching in these early days of his ministry. Uh, We looked at it last week. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, you might think of this as Jesus' stump speech, to to borrow campaign language. Uh, Chances are Jesus gave some variation on this message everywhere he went. And in case you hadn't noticed, it had three points. First, the time has come. The message of Jesus begins with the idea that something is about to happen, that God is on the move. Whenever Jesus spoke, there was this sense that it was a critical moment, an important message that demanded the listener's attention and response. And I happen to believe that the same thing is true today of this space and this moment, just like it was when Jesus spoke in that synagogue 30-something A.D. And I hope you know that every Grace Chapel teacher who stands in front of you on any given Sunday, feels this same sense of urgency, of significance. That's why we're preaching this series in January of 2024. We believe God is up to something, something new and important in our lives and our church. Well, Jesus' second point is that the kingdom of God is near or at hand. Now, we've talked about that phrase, kingdom of God, before. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. It's God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's it's life lived under the rule of God. So the kingdom of God isn't a time or a place you can point to and say, oh, there it is. Jesus tells us as much in another gospel. The kingdom of God is within you. He says, wherever and whenever people surrender to the rule of God in a home or a church or a community, the kingdom comes to those people, to that place. It brings wholeness and wellness and peace and justice and life to the full. Now, 
Doesn't that make you sit up and pay attention? Don't we want that today? Uh, they tell us that Americans are more pessimistic these days than at any time in the past nearly 100 years. In a stunning reversal of previous patterns, only 20% of the population believes that the next generation will have it better than they did. 63% are pessimistic about our nation's moral and ethical standards. 59% are pessimistic about our educational system. In one poll, Americans were given seven words to describe their feelings about the upcoming election. Three positive, three negative, and one neutral. And the word they chose most often, 40% of the time, was the word dread. And in the words of another pollster, simply put, 2023 has been a year of mourning in America. And what was it Jesus said? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If we ever wanted and needed to hear that the kingdom of God is near, that wholeness and wellness and peace and justice are at hand, it's, it's now in January of 2024. Well, the third point Jesus makes is that we, we need to repent and believe the good news. Uh, which means we, we don't have to get stuck in dread and mourning. We can choose new and better things. Turn, Jesus says, and believe the good news of the kingdom. All this to say, the message of Jesus was compelling and still is. The life and teaching of Jesus stirs something inside of us. Even, even the most weary and cynical among us. And it points us towards new and better things. I came across a fascinating story recently about a woman named Julie Hanna and her journey to faith in Christ. Now, Julie is a brilliant mathematician. She grew up in South Africa in a nominally religious home, but walked away from Christian faith in her teenage years, deciding it was superstitious and limiting and nonsense. As a young adult, she went on a search for meaning turning to philosophy and science and, and world religions. Uh, I'll let her tell you about it in her own words. My study of religious traditions brought me into contact with Taoism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, mysticism and meditation, and various Eastern gurus. Each system offered, offers glimmers of insight, but none felt intellectually satisfying. I wondered if I would ever find one unified truth about life and the cosmos. Well, she decided that to be fair, she ought to take an objective look at Christianity as well. So she began listening to recordings of the New Testament on her daily commute to the university to teach. And she writes, Through the four Gospels, I encountered a voice that was strikingly different from anything I had read before. In Jesus' debate with the religious leaders of his time, I saw a credible and incisive intellect. His parables and metaphors struck me as cleverly constructed and consistent 
in revealing Jesus to be God's son and the true shepherd of his people. Well, that prompted her to do a deep dive into scripture and church history and, and even non-biblical sources about Jesus and the Christian faith. And at a certain point, she had to admit that the claims of the Bible were more trustworthy than I had supposed. They were also surprisingly compelling. Now, we'll come back to Julie's story a little later, but, but it illustrates the captivating nature of Jesus' message. It offers a better vision for our lives and the world. So our first observation is that the message of Jesus was compelling and still is. The second observation I'll offer is that the message of Jesus was disturbing and still is. Disturbing and still is. Now, based on the little bit that Mark gives us here, it looks like Jesus' sermon got off to a great start. The people are nudging each other and leaning forward in their seats. But then something happens, something disturbing. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I've preached some controversial sermons in my time, but I've never had anyone stand up and shout, Hey, what do you want with us? I know who you are. And if they did, the ushers would be calling for security. This is a disturbing moment. Now, most of us, I realize, don't have a lot of experience with demon-possessed people. But it was a commonly accepted phenomenon in the ancient world. And while there were likely psychological and physiological factors that contributed to such a condition, clearly there were dark spiritual forces at work in this man's life, forces that were beyond his control. And whatever his background was, we get the sense that this troubled man was, was a member of the community, likely a regular attender of Sabbath services. But we also get the sense that this kind of thing hadn't happened before. So, so what prompted it? Jesus must have said something to disturb or provoke the darkness within this person, uh, such that the, the evil that had been hidden or under wraps was suddenly exposed. And, and while this was a rather extreme example, it turns out that Jesus' preaching regularly disturbed people and exposed the sin or darkness in them or in their community. More than once in the chapters to come, we'll see listeners get angry or push back or walk away or try to shut them up for good. I recently watched an episode of The Chosen that depicted Jesus' return to his hometown of Nazareth and the sermon that he preached there. I, I, I think they captured the story pretty well. Initially, as Jesus began to teach, the people were amazed, just like this crowd. They loved what he had to say about the kingdom and how near it was. But then he confronted their hypocrisy and hardness of heart, and people didn't like it. They began to grumble among themselves. Who does he think he is? 
And before he could even get to his third point, they ran him out, tried to shove him off a cliff. The message of Jesus was disturbing and still is because it exposes the darkness in us and, and in the world. It names our sin, our, our human tendency to go our own way, to resist God's good purposes for us and for the world, to choose things that, that actually bring harm to us and others. A few months ago, I was attending board meetings at Denver Seminary, and the president, Mark Young, a good and wise man, was leading us in a devotional. It was just a week or two after the conflict between Israel and Hamas had broken out. And we were all reeling with the terror and atrocities that people were inflicting on one another in that part of the world. And at one point, he offered a disturbing observation about humankind. We're not just broken, he said. We're wicked. The room got quiet and tense. What do you mean we, some of us were thinking? Uh, we would never do such things or, or tolerate such things. Knowing what we were thinking, Mark reflected on his years as a missionary in Eastern Europe and his many visits to the concentration camps there and the horrors and the genocide inflicted by Nazi Germany. A nation that at the height of its dark power was overwhelmingly Christian. 95% of the soldiers in the Third Reich were, were raised in the Christian faith. The vast majority of churches were conspicuously silent throughout that reign of terror. We got his point. Who knows what any of us are capable of under the right or the wrong conditions? We're not just broken. We're wicked. Now, th those words are disturbing. They expose the dark tendencies within each of us and all of us. But we need to hear them sometimes. We need to face the truth about ourselves. And Jesus isn't afraid to call us on it. Getting back to Julie's story, she writes, at one point, quite early in my investigation, I was immersing myself in Sufism, which is known for being peaceful and contemplative. I earnestly tried living by its precepts of patience and love, but it did not come easily. One day I lost my temper with a neighbor. After a heated conversation, I stormed back into my house, fuming with my frustration at my failure to master my emotions. I knew there must be some other way to live a better life, but I couldn't identify the alternative. She goes on to say, Modern minds reject notions of innate sinfulness, but for me, they made sense of the world's most intractable problems. And of our own inability to fix what's wrong with us. So the message of Jesus was compelling and still is because it offers us a better vision for our lives and for the world. The message of Jesus was disturbing and still is because it exposes the darkness in us and the world. 
but don't despair. My third observation is that the message of Jesus was transformative and still is because it frees us to become our better selves. Let's look at the end of the story. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, typically, exorcisms in the ancient world involved all sorts of incantations and rituals and drawn-out harangues. But with Jesus, all it took was a few words. Be quiet, Jesus said. It's actually the same expression he'll use when he calms the storm at sea. Be still. And with those two words, the man was delivered from the dark forces that had taken hold of him and freed to become the man he was created to be, the man he longed to be. And so now we begin to understand what the people meant when they said Jesus taught with authority. It wasn't that he spoke loudly or eloquently or even persuasively. It was that when he spoke, lives were changed. This deliverance was just the beginning. In the pages to come, Jesus will say to a paralyzed man lowered down through a roof, your sins are forgiven. And by the way, get up and walk. To a 12-year-old on her deathbed, he'll say, little girl, I say to you, arise. To a leper covered with sores and social stigma, he'll say, be clean. To a woman who'd been sick and shunned for 12 years, he'll say, Sister, your faith has healed you. Be freed from your suffering. Jesus was able to say those things, not only because of who he was, but because of what he would do. Because after a few years of preaching, Jesus would stop talking and instead would take on himself all the evil and darkness of this world and of humankind. He would own it, all of it, our brokenness, our wickedness, our shame, and he would put it to death on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be possessed by it anymore. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering the stifling power of sin and death freeing us to follow him into new and eternal life. That's the message of Jesus. And he didn't just preach it, he lived it. It's a message that can change anyone and everything. All we have to do is turn and believe the good news. And that message changed Julie. When she came to the end of herself and, and turned to Jesus, she describes it this way. I experienced a stark, painful realization of my own sinfulness, a broad awareness that all my plans and actions had been aimed primarily at satisfying my own needs. Sobbing, I fell to my knees in shame. That's the turning from peace, what we call repentance. 
And then there's the turning toward peace, what we call faith or belief. Julie says, Mercifully, my despair didn't last for long. I confessed wholeheartedly that I was indeed sinful, and I asked God for his forgiveness. Immediately, I was blessed with a profound sense of peace. After years of denial and reluctance, I was finally ready to surrender to the truth of the Christian message. In due course, I would commit myself to Christ and be baptized. After decades of spiritual dodging and denial, this became a life-changing experience for her. She's chronicled her journey in a book entitled A Skeptic's Investigation into Jesus. Everyone's experience won't be as as immediate and dramatic as the demoniacs or as, as drawn out and emotional as Julie's was. But anyone and everyone can experience forgiveness and freedom that comes when we turn from our old ways and believe the transformative message of Jesus. So let me ask a couple of questions as we wrap up today. First, have you believed the life-changing message of Jesus? Have you faced your own brokenness or wickedness and asked Christ to forgive you and set you free? Now, it could be you're, you're hearing this message for the very first time today. Maybe you've heard it before, but but you're not sure you're ready to believe it. (laughs) Maybe you have believed it already, but, but some old thing keeps rearing its ugly head and you need to be freed from it. If you need help turning away from that old thing, I encourage you to check out Celebrate Recovery. It's a community of people who are finding victory over and freedom from those debilitating hurts habits, and hang-ups. A new season begins tomorrow night uh, in Lexington at 6.30. If you're not sure you're ready to believe it, if you feel like you need to know more about who Jesus is and what this kingdom is all about, I encourage you to check out Alpha, which begins tomorrow night, Monday on Zoom. So my first question is, have you believed this life-changing message of Jesus? The second question is, Are you sharing the life-changing message of Jesus? Because there are troubled souls, like that demon-possessed man, in your neighborhood, in your church. There, There are brilliant minds, like Julie the skeptic, passing you every day on the highways and in the hallways at school and work. And like every other human being, they're searching for meaning, for purpose, for one unified truth about life and the cosmos. That meaning, that purpose, that unified truth can be found in the message of Jesus. Have you shared it with them? Now, I don't mean have you preached a three-point sermon to them. I mean, have you ever had a conversation about what's wrong with the world and, and our desire for something better? Have you ever... Acknowledge your own brokenness or wickedness. Have you ever shared with them what Christ has done in your life? 
A recent survey suggests that people are more open to spiritual conversations than they have been in a long time. 44% of people say they are more open to God today than they were before the pandemic. And if, if you're having a hard time getting the words out, well, that's okay. Because it turns out that one of the main things seekers are looking for today is Christians who actually live their faith and don't just talk about it. And we, we could ask the same question of, of the church and, and of our church. As we think about the future of Grace Chapel, let's be sure it's all about sharing the life-giving message of Jesus. Because if it's not, what, what sets us apart from any other religious institution or any other secular institution for that matter? If all we're about is self-improvement and doing good, if all we offer people is inspiring services and excellent programs and service to the community, we're leaving out the best part to message the person who can change their lives for the better forever. When God does something new in our lives or the church or the world, it's always grounded in the compelling, disturbing, life-changing message of Jesus. Have you believed that message? Are you and we sharing that message? message. I hope you'll give some serious thought to those two questions today. And someday, five or 10 or 20 years from now, if some preacher asks you to think of a sermon that changed your life, maybe you'll think of this sermon. Maybe you'll think of today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the message we've been able to consider today. Not my message, but your message of forgiveness and freedom through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for our participation in the foolishness and wickedness of this world. And free us, Lord, to become the people and the church we were made to be and long to be. In Jesus' name, amen.